Today we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a man by the name of Elijah. Now how you would say that in Hebrew would be Eliyahu. And Eliyahu literally means my God is Yahweh. Now with a name like Eliyahu, with a name like Elijah, my God is Yahweh. It is really hard to deny your faith. It is really hard to be settled. It is really hard, especially in a pagan culture, in a pagan land, to go unnoticed. And we are going to look at a man today that had some boldness for the Lord. See, Elijah was just an ordinary average man that God had chosen, God had called to do some big and extraordinary things. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it like many of the men we see all throughout Scripture he had his share of mistakes. But today we're going to talk about one of his successes. And one thing that we see about Elijah is in this instant, in this moment of 1 Kings chapter 18, he had incredible boldness. Now, if you are into basketball at all, you know that we always measure how many baskets somebody scores. But another stat that we measure in basketball is their assists. Their assists, what set up the basket to be scored in the first place matters. Because often without an assist, there's no basket. We have to do the setup. And today, we're not going to focus as much time on the basket, the touchdown. We're going to focus a little bit more on the groundwork that set that up in the first place. We know the story of Elijah. We know the story of him and King Ahab where he called down fire from heaven. And just a long story short, one thing that we can always remember is Jesus always wins in the end. And that's how this story finishes up right here. God did what only God can do. But the setup is where I find a lot of interest. Because what happens in the setup is we see the character of Elijah exposed. The character of Elijah becomes very apparent. You know, I look at a, another man not necessarily in scripture, but a man that I find in high regard who, while his integrity wasn't given to him through trial, his integrity was exposed during the trial. His integrity, his character was exposed through trial, not given to him during the trial. This man was Lieutenant John Fox of World War II, December 26, 1944. He was surrounded by Germans in an Italian village. And he decided that him and a small group of other Americans would stay back and they would simply be a lookout squad to warn the large group of Americans that would be resting a few miles behind them. Now, what ended up happening was a group of German soldiers came upon them and they fought them off as long as they could, but there were so many more troops coming than what they knew to do with. And eventually what ended up happening is they had to call in numerous airstrikes. Well, as the Germans kept getting closer and closer to his position, he was the only man left of his battalion. And so he kept having to call for airstrikes closer to his position and closer to his position as they made their way forward. And finally, he gave the coordinates for the last and the final airdrop, the last and final bombing to take place. And the person on the receiving end of the line said, uh, Lieutenant Fox, that is, that's your position. Are you correct? And he says, I'm absolutely correct. Fire it on me. And they responded back with him, 
sir, we will not do that. We are not going to do friendly fire. That's not what Americans do. And what Lieutenant Fox was trying to convey was if he wouldn't have given his life, many others would have to give theirs. And so he gave his life as the ransom for many. And what is interesting about this is they had to, over minutes and minutes and minutes of arguing, all he started doing was just to scream, fire, 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 send the bombs. And they eventually did on his position. And you can imagine what happened to Lieutenant John Fox. Just to make matters interesting, what I find very intriguing is this. Lieutenant John Fox was part of one of the only African-American battalions. And he died for a group of guys that weren't willing to serve beside him at the time. Isn't that intriguing? Isn't that intriguing to think that he was willing to die for those that perhaps wouldn't have even been grateful? Do you know that it took 50 years for him to get awarded the Medal of Valor? Think about that for a minute. And I think about that's what our Savior did for us, knowing that we perhaps wouldn't be grateful, that many would never say thank you. He gave his life as a ransom for many anyway. Once again, Lieutenant John Fox did not develop his character in that moment. Simply, that was the moment that revealed what his character was. See, when I think about character, what I want to think about is us being similar to a sponge. And here's what it is. What happens when you squeeze a sponge and a sponge gets under pressure? Don't worry, it's just color water. It won't stain the carpet. I checked. So when you squeeze a sponge, what happens? What on the inside becomes apparent because what's on the inside is forced to the outside. And one thing I think we need to remember here is this. Our character, our integrity, but most importantly, our faith is exposed in the trial when we are under pressure. Do you guys understand what I'm saying today? See, what I think that we need to make sure that we're getting is that what's on the inside comes out through trial. What's on the inside comes out when we are under pressure. Here's my question. What are you putting in? Because whatever you're putting in is what comes out. Garbage in, garbage out. But hear me. When we, like Elijah, dwell on the things of the Lord... When we, like Elijah, make much of our Savior, when we, like Elijah, get alone with prayer, we get alone in the Word, and we have encounters with God, when we are squeezed, when life gives us pressure, the Holy Spirit flows out. Now, hear me. Hear me today. Here's something I want for us to all to just unite under. We have so many people in our church that I have seen go through pressure this past year. You have gone through pressure. You have lost loved ones. You have been given illnesses. You have dealt with some major financial issues. And let me go ahead and tell you, I am blessed to say that we have so many people at IBC that when they are squeezed, you see God pour out of them. You see the Holy Spirit come out of them. You see joy. You see love. You see forgiveness when they're tested. Let me go ahead and tell you, I am grateful to have so many believers around me to set an example for me. But here's how that works. They didn't just wake up one day during the hardship and choose that they would show the love of Jesus during hardship. So they would have faith, that they would have joy. Here's what happened. It was simply a byproduct of who they are on a day-to-day basis. You don't just wake up one day with integrity. You don't just wake up one day and have faith. You don't just wake up one day and know how to handle these issues. Here's what happens. It was simply the inpouring into themselves. They inpoured, they poured into their lives the Holy Spirit. They poured into their lives 
lives, a relationship with Jesus. So during the times of pressure, their relationship with Jesus became very apparent. Can I tell you, I think we can all agree that we've been around people in our lives that when they are squeezed, you recognize that their relationship with the Lord isn't quite as strong as what we might have thought it was. We recognize people that when they are squeezed, when they're under pressure, they crack and they fold. Why? Because they did not have a strong relationship with Jesus. And character, or sorry, trial reveals character. It doesn't build it. When I look at Elijah, we see a man that got alone with God and in turn in this situation stood for the Lord well. See, we see in the previous chapter that God told Elijah to go to King Ahab. This was a wicked king. Scripture actually says that it was the most wicked king that they had ever seen. And then right after that it says, but he even had a more wicked wife. So here's what we learned from that. Behind every evil man is a more evil woman. <laughs> Scripture, don't get mad at me. GPS, God's postal service, I didn't write the mail, I just delivered it. Boom. Anyway, but here's the truth. Here's the God honest truth with this. She ended up wanting to worship false idols. She ended up wanting to worship Baal and Asherah. And so what ended up happening was King Ahab made sure that she could. And he bent over backwards to please his wife rather than pleasing the Lord. You hear that, husbands? God will never bless your marriage when you seek to please your wife more than you seek to please Jesus. Hear those words today. So what ends up happening is they send this man named Elijah. God calls on Elijah, a young Tishbite from Tishbe. And what he is called to do is to go and tell the king that because you have introduced all of these false idols, all of these pagan gods into the culture of Israel, God's chosen people, God will refuse to send rain to Jerusalem. He is going to stop completely because you have desecrated the land. And as soon as Elijah says this, then Elijah leaves and God hides Elijah for three Years. Elijah is away from the drama. He is being taken care of by the Lord. He is being fed food and provided everything that he needs. But then God comes back to Elijah and says, Do you remember that king that you made angry? The one who we haven't seen rain for three years. And remember, if you're dependent upon agriculture, rain is kind of sort of a big deal. They needed rain to survive. They needed rain for their crops. They needed rain for their animals. They needed rain just for them to live. And so in turn, the kingdom is devastated. The king is having trouble. The kingdom is diminishing. And the king, Ahab, is angry. And who does he blame? He blames Elijah. But then God, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain Upon the earth. You hear this? Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain. Do you recognize that it wasn't even dependent upon Ahab's response? God just said, You go do what I called you to do and I'll do my part. Verse 2 So Elijah went to show himself. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now remember, King Ahab, very wicked man. King Ahab didn't like 
Elijah. Elijah was risking his life to go before him. But then here's what gets so interesting in this moment. I love this moment. If we go back, media team, can you go back to verse 1 for me? After many days, what came? The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 2 for me. So Elijah went. The word of the Lord came, so Elijah went. You want to know what's not in between those two things? So Elijah debated. So Elijah complained. So Elijah argued. That wasn't there. At no point did Elijah ever get upset. At no point do we see in this scripture Elijah trying to debate, well, God, that's really not going to work for me because he's angry at me. But here's what I love. Elijah had immediate obedience. Do you hear this? Immediate obedience. See, I think that when we aren't obedient in God's time frame, that's disobedience. I think obedience is when we do what God has called us to do in the time frame in which God has called us to do it with the right heart attitude. I think that that's what God defines as obedience. And so when God comes after Elijah and says, hey, listen, I need you to be obedient, so Elijah went. See, parents, have you ever told your kid, hey, would you stop what you're doing and go clean your room? And they say, well, you know, I'll do it when I feel like it. Does that work for you? What about... When you say, hey, you can't leave the dinner table until you've finished all of your food. What if they responded with, I'll finish whenever I want to finish. Can I just go ahead and tell you, my mama would have smacked me. But see, here's the thing. We all agree that that's ridiculous. But when Jesus has been asking you to go share Jesus with your lost friend or family member or co-worker, you keep saying you'll do it later. Do you see how we love to put off our own obedience? And we always make excuses as to why it would just be, what, be better if we were patient. Do you realize that your patience is often your disobedience? Because when you're patient to be obedient to the Lord, that's purely disobedient. Here's what you're really hoping for. Can I just, let, let's just break it down together, okay? Here's what you're really hoping for. You're really hoping that when God tells you to do something and you're patient, you're really hoping that he'll change his mind or somebody else will do it or the door will shut and you'll no longer have to do what God's calling you to do. Let's just call a spade a spade today, church. Let's just be honest with one another. That's what we're hoping for. But when God tells Elijah to go, so Elijah went. I think that there's something significant about that for us. I think that when God calls us to be faithful, when God calls us to go evangelize, when God calls us to get into the word, when God calls us to disciple our kids, he doesn't say do it at some point. He says do it now. I think all too often we forget that God could be talking to us in the present about the present, not something we should be doing years down the road. See, God's word says that it is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And the thing that we have to remember is the word lamp, it really dis dis described a two-step lamp, meaning it only showed you your next two steps. Here's the thing. We have to take those next two steps immediately. We don't wait. I think we have to remember 
that more often than not, when God is calling us to obedience, he's asking us to come to immediate obedience. Do you want to know why Elijah was picked? Because he was immediately faithful. If God wouldn't have used Elijah, if Elijah wouldn't have been obedient, God just would have picked somebody else is what I think. You know what's interesting to me? I believe and I pray every day that God would send revival to Marshall, Texas. I do. I pray often that we will see revival. But here's what I'm also hoping for. I'm praying that just like when God looked down and he was looking for a faithful servant to be used, I pray that he looks down and he says, IBC has been faithful with little, so I'm going to give them much. I pray that when God wants to send revival, he looks at us and says, and I want to use you to do it. I want to be first string on the team for Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't want for Jesus to say, hey, listen, You've done well, but there's somebody else that could do better. I want for Jesus to say, you are the best arrow in my quiver, and we are going to launch you in for the gospel. That's what I'm hoping for as an individual. That's what I'm hoping for, Emmanuel, as a congregation. I don't want to be second string for Jesus. Can I just be real with you? I just don't. Would I be so grateful if God sent revival and didn't use us? Absolutely. But I would be questioning my own heart, going, why not? us. I think if we can be immediately obedient with the small things, he'll provide bigger and bigger opportunities. But here's where it starts. Can I go ahead and say something? I'm talking about us as a church, but our church is comprised of individuals. And if individuals within our church are not immediately obedient with every single aspect of their lives, the church will never be immediately obedient with anything. You recognize this? It starts with you. Don't be looking for leadership to start this. Don't be thinking that this is up to the deacons or the church council or the senior pastor. Hear me. It's up to you to be faithful in the small things in your own life. And that all trickles up. That's how it works. I believe when we're faithful in the small things, God blesses us with bigger. Think about David, for example. King David started off as a shepherd boy. He walks up to a battlefield and he gets to fight and kill Goliath, makes him famous, makes him respected. One of the biggest, most powerful moments in all of the Old Testament. But you know how he showed up there in the first place? Do you guys remember why he was there in the first place? His dad asked him to be obedient And he immediately went to deliver cheese and bread to his brothers. He was the very first cheese pizza delivery boy. And that's what gave him access to the battle in the first place. He was immediately obedient with things that didn't seem to matter. With small things that didn't seem to be that important. Things that he could have just put off and done a few days later. But if he would have waited, he would have missed his opportunity. I think that all too often... Christians wait and wait and wait in the door that God opened for us to do things amazing for the gospel are closed. Get back to the story. So Elijah, immediately obedient, but instead of going straight to the king, he couldn't get access to the king. If he would have gotten closer to the king, the king would have somebody kill him. So he goes to a mutual friend, Obadiah. And he says, hey, Obadiah, do me a favor, brother. Set up a meeting between me and the king. Now, Obadiah's got a little frustration because While Elijah's been safe, Obadiah's been having to do a lot of work behind the scenes. See, Obadiah follows the Lord too, and he's having to hide a hundred plus Christian men. He's trying to hide a hundred plus men of the Lord that are hiding because when Elijah made King Ahab mad, basically King Ahab put a hit on anybody that followed after the Lord. 
And so these other prophets, these hundred plus men, are hiding in a cave. And Obadiah is having to figure out how to feed these guys every single day. His stress level, a little heightened. Can I tell you, some of you guys don't really connect with, with Elijah as much as you do Obadiah. You're doing the tedious work. You might never be that big vocal mouthpiece. You might never be that person in the revival that's leading the charge. But can I guarantee you that if there was never an Obadiah, Elijah would have a very difficult time. If there was never an Obadiah to be that liaison, to be faithfully serving. Can I say this? Some of you mamas, you need to connect with Obadiah. He was faithful to serve every single day through the tedious, tedious work doing whatever it took to be faithful. We're all called to do different things. Recognize what your work is and do it well. And so Obadiah eventually was able to set up the meeting between the king and between Elijah. Now remember, there's tension here. And Obadiah is going, hey, listen, if I set this meeting up, brother, you better show up. You better show up. Don't you dare leave me hanging because the king will absolutely kill me. And so he sets the meeting up. Up. And then let's jump together. Let's jump to verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. You see this? Ahab is so ready to end this drought. He's so frustrated. He's so mad. He goes to Elijah. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you? You troubler of Israel. Now, this is kind of like a movie moment here. You know, typically when you go, and even if you, like businessmen in here, have you ever had tense meetings and you know they're going to be tense before you walk in? Like you go ahead and know that you might not like each other and you and the other person, it might be bad, but you always start off kind of friendly, don't you? It always starts off with a typical handshake. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. How's the family? And then it gets kind of rough. Not this guy. Ahab doesn't pull any punches. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's like the, the troubler of Israel. That's Hebrew for calling someone a snake. And what he's saying here, is that you, you young little punk? Is that you, you little pain in my rear? The one that made life so difficult. He's not kind at all from the very beginning. He's angry. He's mad. Can you sense the frustration coming out of King Ahab? And when he gets to confront Elijah, that anger is outpouring. Now, you think for a minute, you think for a second that he should be a little bit kinder because he should recognize the power that Elijah has behind him. But that's not how it works. Can I go ahead and tell you something? Transformation and trouble go hand in hand. Transformation and trouble go hand in hand. When we want to see transformation in our communities, when we want to see transformation in our country and in the world, do you recognize that that's going to cause trouble? Do you recognize that that's going to cause us to rock the boat? Do you recognize that that's going to cause us to have some issues with others that do not agree with us? But can I go ahead and tell you, because Christians have been silent for far too long, that is why a lot of things look as bad as they are. It's because we've allowed things to be that way. And instead of being a troubler, we have simply become complacent. I would rather be called a troubler rather than be called complacent. I would rather people tell me that, man, I was making life difficult for those that wanted to follow after the Lord rather than make it easy. Listen, I think the reason why the government's in the shape it is, I think the reason why the culture is in the shape it is, 
I think the reason why the media is in the shape it is is because Christians haven't stood up long enough, loud enough, and we've just let it happen. Can I tell you and hear me? We do everything with love. We do everything with kindness in our hearts, but we do not sit down and shut up because the world wants us to. We don't do it. Transformation and trouble go hand in hand. So Elijah had to stir up some trouble in order to see transformation. Christians desiring to be used by God must be willing to be misunderstood and disliked by others. It goes together. People will not get us. They will not understand us. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It matters what our holy God thinks about you. Verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel. Ooh, and I love this, man. Elijah just doesn't get scared. He doesn't cower down. He looks at mighty King Ahab and says, I didn't trouble Israel. I didn't cause the problems. You did in your father's house because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. See, listen, there's some times where it's good to find common ground, but there's other times when it's really important for people to understand where blame truly is. And I think sometimes it's important for us just to call a spade a spade and be a little blunt with love. And here's what it is. Lying to people out of love isn't love. Sugarcoating things, that's not love either. Being honest about what scripture says, that's where love is. And this is what Elijah does. And he says, I haven't troubled Israel. You have because you haven't followed after the Lord. You've complicated things. God's chosen people, the Israelites, the same ones that God took out of Egypt, the ones that he walked through seas, the ones that he rescued, the ones that he provided for, the ones that he walked through countless battles, through victories. You have deceived them. And you are the cause of this. You are the reason. You are the leader and the blame falls on you. Do you hear that, parents? You are the leader in your households. Lead your children intentionally closer to Jesus. And so he says, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have. Remember, this is a big deal. Things are dying. People are dying. Cattle is dying. Verse 19, now send. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashura who eat at Jezebel's table. So he says, I want you to go ahead and grab 850 of the prophets that you use with these false idol worships. Now, just to make things make sense, remember, God called the Israelites to be monotheists, called us to be monotheists. Big word to mean we're just supposed to worship one God, the holy God, God and God alone. But what he does is he says, hey, listen, you can worship God. But Ahab says, you can also worship all these other gods as well. Let's, let's not get rid of God. Let's just add to God. Let's just do that so that then you can have more options. And so this is what he does to deceive the Israelites and in turn turning them into polytheists, people that worship multiple gods, completely taking them away from what God had called them and commanded them to do. If you've ever read the, give, the Ten Commandments, that's kind of a big one, right? Not to have any other gods before our Savior, but yet they do. They cling to it. And so what happens here is this. Elijah says, get them all together. And remember, the Baals were incredibly perverse. 
there was a lot of inappropriate sexual acts that were happening in the temple of the Baals. I mean, incredible things. They would slash their arms. They would sacrifice children. I mean, there was incredibly perverse actions happening in, in their minds. They thought if they would commit these perverse actions, the gods would find favor on them. How perverse. And so in turn, Elijah says, get them all together, and we're going to meet on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was where they had their temples. Mount Carmel was the Baal's home turf. It's like going to play a football game on your enemy's field. He says, you can have home field advantage. Not to mention that, I'll come under, um, what is it called? Undermatch, unmatch, whatever it is. I'll come with only one. You can have 850. I don't care because my God is bigger. It doesn't matter how many odds you want to stack up against my Savior. It doesn't scare me because it doesn't scare my Jesus. And so you see the boldness that he has in this moment. But something I want for you guys to remember is this. When we follow after the Lord, when we pursue Jesus, we think about walking down a road and just walking behind Jesus. And I think that's a good illustration. But for this example, would you think about it like climbing a rope? See, the thing about climbing a rope is this. The further you climb up the rope, and if Jesus is leading, then you're climbing and climbing up the rope. The further you get, the more you have to risk. You know what I mean? And the more you have to have some faith, because if that rope doesn't hold you up and you fall from higher up, and you've got more to risk, guess what? It's a further way down. But here's the thing with climbing a rope. We know that the rope of our faith, Jesus would never let it go. Jesus is never going to break. Jesus is never going to crumble. The only thing that could ever pull us off the rope is if we choose to let go. Something significant here. Hear me. The further we follow after Jesus, the more all in we are, the more risk we take in the eyes of the world. Because we're not putting eggs in any other basket. Hear me. Narrow is the way to Jesus. And few find it. But wide is the path to destruction. There's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. The world wants to tell you there's so many different ways. And we see so many different people with so many different faiths in heaven, all worshiping God. And we'll all call him different things. Let me go ahead and tell you, if they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they won't be there. Because that's what God's word says, church. That's what we have to hold on to. We have to be firm in love. And we don't say that to hold it over them. We hold that into our hearts as a motivation to evangelize to them because eternity matters. And so he calls them out and he says, listen, I'm going to risk it all because my God is good under pressure. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, and this is good. He grabs the Israelites who have been worshiping all of these false gods, all the Israelites that have been paying attention to all of these false idols, thinking that they can go back and forth between worshiping God and worshiping Baal. And he says this in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. He said, listen, they both can't be right. You either need to be all in or don't bother. Can I go ahead and tell you that if Jesus isn't Lord and the Bible isn't true, I got a whole lot of sinning to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just not going to go and live by something that's not 100% true. If Jesus didn't die on that cross, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then can I just tell you what's the point? Like, what's the point? But guess what he did? 
And everything in Scripture is true. And because of that, we hold on to it with everything that we have. We don't go limping back and forth. See, when he says the word limping, what he's trying to paint in the Hebrew mindset would be a literal picture of somebody with one leg shorter than the other. And if you have one leg shorter than the other, what happens? You walk with a limp, and it's difficult to go through life with a limp. Have you ever seen somebody that suffers from a limp? My goodness, you know what's funny? Often, my wife has to go to the chiropractor, and there's something that always happens. Whenever she lays down, they lay her on her stomach, and I've seen him do it, and he'll lift up her heels. And always what happens is one leg is longer than the other every time. Now, she wasn't born that way. It's not like she had one leg longer than the other when she was born. Here's what ends up happening. When you get one little thing off in your life, like a rib gets out, or maybe your shoulders aren't square, your body wants to do everything it can to be straight. And so it starts to compensate. And it just works its way all the way up and down your spine, down your legs, down your hips. And then eventually, your whole body is messed up and morphed because one thing was wrong. Can I go ahead and tell you this? Often, your entire life can get affected, and it starts with one small sin, one small act of disobedience, one small bit in your life that you truly haven't surrendered over to the Lord, and guess what? It grows. Everybody loves to play with a baby lion, but guess what? That baby lion turns into a monster one day. Can I go ahead and tell you this? What you feed is what grows in your life, and what you put into your life is what comes out out when you are squeezed. And can I go ahead and tell you this? Some of you are putting sin into your life. And when you are squeezed, when you are under pressure, you know what you run to? The same sinful vices that you've been running to in secret, but eventually it becomes public because you just can't control it anymore. You need more and more of that sin when you get under pressure. Can I tell you that when I get under pressure, I need more and more of Jesus because I've chosen to allow myself to be addicted to the Holy Spirit, to be addicted to the cause of Christ, not to become addicted to the things of this world. But when pressure comes, you run straight to your addiction. We all are addicted to something, but we can choose to be addicted to our Savior. Do you hear those words? Choose to be addicted to the Savior. So he says, how long will you limp? How long will you go back and forth? See, you've got to choose to be all in with the Lord or be all out. I really don't understand why you would choose to be halfway in with Jesus. See, there's something that said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you ever seen a Pringles commercial? Once you pop, the fun don't stop. You can't just have one Pringle, right? Those are good. But here's what's true. The Holy Spirit is better. And I feel like once you've gotten a taste of how good the Lord is, once you've really embraced the Lord into your life, once you've really experienced the Lord, you don't want to let go. You don't want to stop. I think a lot of people are holding on to false salvations. I really do. Because I don't feel like so many people have encountered the Lord like they think they have. Because I feel like if you've truly encountered the Lord, it shouldn't be that easy just to walk away from him. It shouldn't be that easy just to push everything that he says aside. See, there was a day, I'll say this, there, we're always told to have open minds. Ultimately, what the world wants us to do is 
serve Jesus, but keep that in a box, but then also be totally comfortable with the direction the world is going. And the reason to have an open mind is to eventually close it around something. We want to have an open mind so we eventually can make up our minds. We're not meant to be decisive, undecisive our entire lives. See, there was a moment in my life about five years ago when me and my wife went on our first date, and believe it or not, she said she wanted to marry me first. Caught me off guard, I know. I know. And you know what? It took me a little bit while longer, and here's why. Because my wife has like high-speed Wi-Fi internet connection with Jesus sometimes, and I have like dial-up sometimes. It takes me just a little bit longer to get with the program, but eventually I got there. But here's what ended up happening. When I decided that I was going to marry her, I decided that I was going to throw every other option away. Could you imagine if I said, hey, babe, and I got down on a knee. And I said, will you marry me? But before you say yes, I want to get married to you, but I also want to keep my other options open. Like, listen, I want to be married to you, but just in case you're in a bad mood, I want to have some other ladies that I can go and hang out with. Some other ladies that I can talk to. Can I go ahead and tell you, that ain't going to work for my wife. She might look sweet, but she'll cut me, I guarantee it. Here's what's interesting. Here's what's truth. We do that to the Lord. Hey, listen, we're going to be all in, but the moment we don't feel like you're providing the life that we want, we're going to put some other idols in it. We're going to put that idol of greed. We're going to put that idol of work. Can I go ahead and throw something really big out there? You're going to put the idol of your children you realize that your kids can become the biggest idol in your life? My goodness, don't serve your kids. Show your kids you serving Jesus so one day they'll imitate it. Can I go ahead and say this? A lot of reasons why kids don't pursue the Lord is because they're convinced based upon their parents' actions that they are the Lord. Mm, you hear that? Quit treating your kids like they are the everything. Quit treating your kids like they are most important. Show your kids that Jesus is more important than they are. And hopefully they'll imitate that one day. And so we can't limp back and forth. We have to be all in. All in. We cannot go back and forth. Now we see this confrontation that happens in verse 21. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only prophet left of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. So take two bulls, let them be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of my Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah puts everything out on the line. But you notice this, he tries to stack everything in their favor. He says, listen, we're going to meet at your place. You can use all the prophets that you have. And I won't even give you a time limit. Keep working all day, and they do. They worked all day, and they did every perverse thing they could to try to call the name of their God to them. They try to call the presence of these bales that wouldn't show up. You want to know what's made Elijah a little unique? Elijah knew his God would show up, but he also had faith that their God wouldn't. He also knew that there were empty wells that weren't going to provide anything for them. And I think we have to recognize that. We recognize that our God will show up, but for some reason we think that we will find pleasure in the ways of the world as well. I think we have to understand that joy truly only comes from the Lord. Joy only truly comes from Christ. We don't go back and forth. Elijah recognized that their gods brought nothing to the table. Their gods weren't real. Those gods weren't fulfilling. Those gods were not sufficient like his savior. 
And so in turn, he says, you guys go ahead. And then he starts to mock them as they go more and more perverse. They do everything they can. They're slitting their arms. They're piercing their sides. There were probably even sexual acts that were happening based upon what we know about their worship. And he just starts to mock them because he knows that's not what's gonna happen. He says, is your God joking? Is your God taking a nap? Is your God having to use the bathroom right now? Like he's going like hardcore sixth grade humor for a minute. And then he turns around because he recognizes this. We serve a God that never takes his eyes off of us. We serve a God that always knows what's going on in our life. That is omnipresent, meaning he's always with us. We serve a God that never has to sleep because of his power is so sufficient. Our God is so powerful and so strong. Nothing else holds a candle to their sufficiency. In verse 29, it says that they prayed all day and no one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah comes forward, prays a prayer. Only a few words. He only had to say about 46 words. And God sent fire from heaven that can consume not just the burnt offering, but the water as well. It took everything away and everyone was convinced that Elijah's God was the true God. Everybody was convinced because of what God did in that moment. The Israelites were won back to the Savior because they recognized that Baal couldn't do anything, but our God could. Can I ask you, does God need to do something crazy to win you back? Does God need to do something crazy to get your attention? Does God need to do a gigantic miracle so that you'll understand that those wells of sin that you keep running to are not fulfilling for you in your life? Or can you just trust his word and recognize based upon everything that we've seen, that only God fulfills, only God brings joy. Some of you in here have never given your life to Jesus and you're walking around lost, hear me. You don't understand what true joy is because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You have an opportunity today to give your life to Christ. If you wanna talk to anybody, come and talk to me down here while I'm at the altar. Come and talk to me after the service, but do not leave this building until you are certain you have a relationship with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to get alone with you. God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to get in your word and make much of the boldness that Elijah had. I pray that God, we will not limp back and forth, but rather in turn, we will stand up straight, we will stand up tall, we will stand up proud for you and represent you to the lost world with honesty and with truth. Lord, I pray that you will bless this time of the altar call. In your name we pray, amen.